We have been in a little bit of a series here, kind of a short mini-series, just the last couple of weeks, looking at um, the reality that our culture, we live in a decadent culture. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we all eat too much chocolate, although that may also be true. What it means is that we're, we're in a culture in decline. And we've been looking for the last couple of weeks, like, how do we get to where we are? And I think perhaps uh, some of you may have been surprised to hear kind of the case be argued that we've been at this for a very, very long time. And that we could really trace back some of the current um, complications and even errors in our cultural thinking as far back as the 1300s. Um, and the kind of the villain, the fly in the ointment, so to speak, is a, is a philosophy called nominalism, which believes, and, and began believing for very good reasons, but has had some very ugly stepchildren, that nothing has inherent meaning. Nothing has inherent purpose. There's nothing that is essentially true of anything, that rather that all reality, um, reality exists in a state of neutrality and we merely ascribe meaning, we ascribe purpose. And once you believe that things aren't essential, that there's nothing inherent, well then you're very quick to just start, always start doing your shifting labels around. And I, if I can ascribe one meaning and you can ascribe a different meaning, who's to say who's ascribe meaning is dominant. And really then it becomes a, a fight for who has the most power, who has the most influence, rather than concerning ourselves with what is a fundamental reality. It began um, really as a very benign attempt to free up God, that if God wants to say something is good today and that something is bad tomorrow, that's his to do because he's sovereign. I believe that's an erroneous statement, but it was, it, it was meant to be a way to like affirm God's sovereignty but the problem is once you move from an inherent meaning to an ascribed meaning, even an ascribed meaning by God, you're, you're this close. You're just an inch away from somebody else ascribing their own meaning. And then all sorts of things flow out over time. And we're, we're really seeing kind of some of the extremities of that. Okay? So that's the last two weeks. That's a quick summary of a couple hours of conversation. If you're interested in kind of unpacking that, you, get, you have a couple of options. One is that you could go back and you could listen to these last two sessions all of this class and all of your discussion is available online at chsroanoke.com. Go up to the top, kind of right, and you'll see a place where Sunday School is listed. And you can hear those talks. Um, you could also pick up a book. I know that Bob, I don't know where Bob is, but Bob started reading it. Um, there's a book called um, The Benedict Option by Ron, is it Dreyer? Is that his last name? Um, and, and really, his, uh, his book does a fantastic job of laying out this case. Um, and if, this, if these things are intriguing to you, you want to hear more, that'd be a great place. Those, those are two resources you can go to look at that and, and kind of dig into more of that. Okay? Rod, Rod Dreher. Dr what did I say? Rod Dreher is the author. Oh, yeah, I said Ron. R-O-D-D-R-E-H-E-R. -E -E Am I getting that right, Robert? Is that ish? D-R-E-H-R. -E yeah, something. Okay. Just, it's called the Benedict Option. Whoever wrote it, it's him. Okay? Um, <laughs> and if you like really super nerdy, incredibly boring, hard to read, thick books, and who doesn't, um, <laughs> ideas have consequences. Um, I think it's Richard Weaver. Um, and it's a, you're not going to enjoy it. Okay? But if you love that kind of stuff, that's, that's really like the, the, the really fuller unpacking. Ideas have consequences. Um, but I don't recommend it. So... Um, that's the past. The question, we're, the, the question we're gonna wrestle with now is, okay, so what do we do about it? Like, what do we do? How are we to engage with, if we live, if we live in our culture, and we do, and our culture is broken and dying, and maybe on the back half of a broken process, 
what are Christians to do? Now, the way you answer that question um, is largely going to be shaped by a set of assumptions that you have made that you might not even know you have made, okay? And so before we, before we get into what do we really, really do, I want to give you guys the opportunity to make a little bit of self-discovery about how you think about the world around you, okay? Now, the sheet that you have in front of you um, comes out of this book. Ugh. It's called Center Church. It's written by Tim Keller. And as you can see, even by its format, it's, it's, a, it's really a textbook, okay? This is not like a typical Tim Keller book, which is a... Keller's books are all... Somebody's getting paid to turn Keller sermons into books, and they're just printing money. I don't know how they're doing it, but, but this is not that, okay? This is a textbook. Um, it's brilliant. It's, it's classic Keller. It's insightful. But again, it's not necessarily quite like reading a Keller sermon. Um, Tim, if you don't know Tim Keller, he's a... He just retired, but he's been, he's been pastoring a very, very influential church in uh, Manhattan called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He's brilliant. Everybody, I mean, he's, he's done an enormous amount of good to kind of help shape people's thinking. But he wrote this book called Center Church, and in it, he has a whole extended section on cultural engagement. And so I thought before we try to answer the question, I thought it might be profitable for you to give you guys the opportunity to do a little bit of like, where do I line up on this grid? What, what are my default assumptions? Okay. And so if you take a look at the sheet, here's what you're going to find. And then I, I really would love to hear you guys talk about how, where this resonates with you. Um, and, and I will tell you right out of the gate, this is meant to be a fair presentation. This is not like, this is, the good, this is not a good answer and a bad answer. Every answer has, it's like most things in life. Like every, depending on how you think about the world and your default kind of assumptions, there are things that are like, that's really going to be very helpful. And that will inform a, a set of directions that we might want to go. But every position also has kind of blind spots or has things that it doesn't really fully grapple with. And so it's not like, this is not like a who's in the right quadrant game. This is just really, what's your default? How do, you, how do you think about the world, okay? So the two questions that you want to ask and answer. Number one, is the current culture redeemable and good? Or is it fundamentally fallen? And if you think it's redeemable and good, then you're going to lean up in this top half. One of these two options might be more for you. And if you think, no, man, this thing is gone, baby, gone, your mind is going to lean towards one of these, one of the two bottom ones, okay? And, of course, the reality is that the culture is both <laughs> redeemable and fallen. But which way do you, do you, do you, do you, have, a, do you have an emphasis? Do you feel like, no, man, this thing is over the cliff, it's too late? Or you're like, no, 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 let's get, it's not over yet, right? Top or bottom? And then the other question is kind of the left, right. Should we be optimistic or pessimistic? about culture change, right? And these aren't, these are kind of, you can kind of see how these things relate. Like, should we say, well, we might say, if you're on the left side, you might say pessimistic. We should not actively try to change the culture. All right, well, what do you do? Well, well, we'll see that in a second. Or should you say, no, 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 we should be active in culture and optimistic about our efforts to change it. And depending on how you answer those two questions, you're gonna be drawn into one of these four quadrants or it's very likely you might have sympathies with one or more. You know, maybe a couple of these might, might be more appealing to you. But recognizing who you are and where you fit in this, in this kind of quadrant and into these quadrants will, in, in very significant measure, explain why you think that these people are so stupid because they're over in that quad, right? There's, just, there's reasons that we, we kind of function in these ways. And so I want to give you guys a chance to understand what these four things are. And then we'll take a, we'll take, I'd be interested to hear if you guys recognize yourself on this map, where do you line up? And then maybe over the, maybe somewhat today, we'll see how it's, we got, we got a little bit of a late start. We'll try to like think together through 
what are the uh, what are the pros and cons of each position? Okay, Pat. Can't you live in different quadrants at different times? Oh, great. Pat, so Pat's question is, can you live in different quadrants at different times? And the answer, of course, is yes. So it, it's kind of like on, on any given day, I might read something in the news that fills me with hope and optimism. Or I might read something and I'm like, it's over, we're gone, right? So on day-to-day -day basis, I might bounce around. And season to season, like it might be that you, with your unique temperament and your gifts and your capacities, would think very differently about the world if you were born in 1880 than if you were born in 1950, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to shape the way that you think about the world. And so, so we are going through seasons, right? And in fact, there's a, there's a kind of a helpful model that looks at culture change through a kind of a winter, spring, summer, fall kind of a framework. And it might be, it probably is the case, that um, if, if it's springtime, which you can imagine, springtime is probably things are pretty good, right? Everybody loves spring. When it's springtime, then you're going to have a certain shaping of this that's going gonna, gonna to influence. And it might be that a particular quadrant has more strengths in that season. So, yes, absolutely. Brad? So when the question says, is the current culture redeemable and good, what does and good mean? Um, okay, so let me, let, let, me, let, me, let me try to answer that. Okay, do you mean because good and redeemable seem to be opposites? Yeah. Okay. That's why I'm struggling. Yeah. Okay. So, let me let me back it up. When we say culture, how do I do this? Let's think. Okay. Let me let me start with an explanation of two kingdoms first, because that might that might help inform that. And if I don't answer it, you wave your hand at me again. Okay. So, so there is a this is a, there's a very Lutheran idea that God rules over everything, but He's got two spheres where that rulership is exercised. Anybody know what those two spheres are in a, in a, in a two-kingdom model? What are, the, what are the two primary agencies through which God rules the world? Is this, has anybody been trained in this at all? Okay. Kelly? It's the church and the state. It's the church and the state, right? So whenever you heard, like, separation of church and state, these are, these, are the, these are the two kingdoms, okay? So God rules over the world, and he has two primary agencies through which... He exercises authority. One is the church. The church is, we are meant to bring, we, we bring this moral code. We bring, we bring um, development to, to the broken and to the poor and the hurting. We're explicators of truth. The church has a significant role to shape. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it's a preserving effect of the world. And Romans 13, right, God says um, that we should, we should obey the government, right? That the government is the agent of, of God's wrath. His job is to terrorize the evildoer, right? It says that he doesn't bear the Lord's, he does not bear the sword for nothing, but he's an agent of wrath. So that the government, that's the police, that's the military, that's the judicial system, that's the legislature, all of this is a divinely ordained institution to keep people in line. Without it, madness, chaos. And the church is a divinely ordained institution to shape and influence things. So you have these two paradigms, okay? Now, people will disagree with the implications. How, do they overlap? What if you're a Christian judge? What the heck are you? You know, like, which kingdom do you function in, Tom? Like, how does this work? But these are, the, these are the two ideas, okay? Now, within that, some would say that the church is a subset of the state because we are under the governor's authority. Or maybe some would say that the state is a subset of the church because Jesus is king over all things and we are his, his emissary. So there's debating about this. But in addition to the church and the state... Then you've got the everything else in life, like the arts, 
Like it's shaped, your, the way you think about things has been dramatically influenced by the books that you've read and the movies that you've watched. Maybe less so by the sculpture and paintings that you've seen, but make no mistake, the painting, the sculptures give a vision of what is good and true and beautiful and we're shaped by all these things, okay? So within all of that, Brad, we would say, that's all by way of saying, if the culture, what do we mean by culture? If the culture is all of these things, right? But in particular, not the church. We tend to think about Christ and culture. If we, if we take the church, we put it in a special camp, then the culture could be, as we're looking at in this moment, everything else. It is what the government is doing. It is what the arts are doing. It is what the, um, uh, what's happening in, in education. All of those things. We see ourselves as a church as we are part of the culture. We are the salt of the culture. We shape the culture. But we also see ourselves as distinct from it, wondering how are we to act upon it. And so is this thing, which is a mix, something that is, can be fixed? And should we, therefore, go out into that world and say, like, you know what? Christians should be in the arts. And we should be in, like, the secular arts because that should be the, the, the dominant place. Or, or do we say, you know what? You guys go burn the world down. We don't care. We're going to retreat and we're going to be in our, we're going to have Christian TV shows and Christian bookstores and Christian internet. And we're going to have a Christian mingle, you know. We're going to have our own little separate farmers only kind of dating site, right? We're going to do this kind of thing or are we like, no, no, I mean, let's get out there and let's get into the world where, where things are happening. That's that's kind of the nature of the question that we're asking. Okay, did I get there? We're good. Okay. Kelly. No, no, I'm answering the bottom. So up here, this question that I think that Brad was asking is this top question, which is, are we in the top or the bottom? And you would say, I'm in the bottom, right? I thought you were still talking about this. Yeah, no, so, so, yeah, well, so I was. So I was using two kingdoms to explain the idea of what culture is and what church is and all, the, all these other things, okay? So now we're, we, we kind of, so we got, the question is, is the culture worth going after or do we say no? And if we say it's not worth going after, if it's, well, if it's not redeemable, then we got a couple of options. Right? And so let's walk through the quadrants. Let's, let's just do it like this. Let's say that we think the culture is worth, it's, it's, it's redeemable, it has value, it has benefit. This broader set, what do we do? Well, if we, if we think it's full of common grace, that non-believers can understand natural revelation, that, that, it, that it makes sense to you that a non-Christian should understand why two-parent families are beneficial for the world, right? Do you think they could, they could ever get their head around that? Well, then if so, that's going to shape a certain way of functioning. Like, you know, you know, I think that's a good idea. I don't necessarily accept, you know, Ephesians 5 as a paradigm for marriage, but I can see why it's beneficial to have two-parent families. Well, if you think that, then you're probably going to lean to one of these top two things, two kingdoms or relevance. Two kingdoms, I started to explain, is we just affirm, say, listen, the state does the state thing, and the, uh, and the church does the church thing, right? Let me show an example of the two kingdoms really quickly. Go to Romans 12. This is a very whiplashy passage. If you go to Romans 12, you're going to find something that sounds shockingly like the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Um, Romans 12, 9. He's talking to the church. He's talking to one of these kingdoms. And he says things like this. 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Be joyful in hope. Share with God's people. Verse 14 really sounds Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. 
Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Um, verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, right? Verse 19, do not take revenge. Okay, it's very pacifist, right? It's very soft. It's very lovey-dovey. It's very generous and gentle and kind, right? And then you turn the page and it's like, boom, look at verse 13. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. So there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Verse 3, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Terror? A minute ago, we were like forgiving everybody everything, right? And now there's dread and terror. Um, verse 4, he is a servant, God's servant to do you good. If you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is a God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. These are vastly different paradigms. And Luther would say, yeah, that's because there's two kingdoms. We're the church. We're the nice guys. We forgive. We suffer. We take it in the teeth. And we don't, and we don't kick back. But the state has a job to keep the border safe. And to make sure that you can sleep at night because nobody's going to break into your house. And if they do... We're going to drag him out and put him in jail. Two kingdoms. Okay? Now, that two-kingdom model does assume, therefore, that secular police officers can do a good job, and we should let them. In fact, God has ordered that they do. Okay? Got that paradigm? What's the other side? What's this other, this top right, from your perspective, this side? I don't know. The other quadrant. Relevance. What do you think that's about? Do you know who this is? Have you ever heard me talk about how the church needs to be relevant? Swam in those circles? This is the most confusing box, you guys. It's going to be both the liberal mainline Protestant church that's just like, listen, we're just, we're, we're not going to confront people. We're certainly not going to mess around with their sex lives. Like, live your life, do your thing. But it's also going to include like more of like a seeker-friendly church, if you're familiar with those guys. You know, like Bill Hybels, Willow Creek. For a long time, I don't know, maybe in the 90s, it was like the heyday of the seeker-friendly model, where all they want to do is make sure that our music should sound like their music, so they'll come in and listen to us. Our communication style should, should feel like their communication styles. The way we, 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 want to do, we want to imitate the world as much as we can, for one thing, because the world is good, right? It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with rock and roll, just like rock and roll about Jesus and everything's great, Right? There's nothing wrong with rap music. Let's just have Christian rappers. Let's, just, let's, let's, let's imitate what the world is doing. Let's find the best art forms that the world has, and let's do like that, right? And so I would say in this quadrant, there tend to be guys that I really like and agree with and guys that I really don't like and disagree with. But you're going to have a high, high value. Let's look like everybody else because if we look like them, then they will like us, and then we'll have the opportunity to kind of help them know how great Jesus is. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, these are all the guys that feel like the culture has something good to offer. So we're going we're gonna to work through secular organizations. That's great. We are going to imitate them in some ways because it's going to help us kind of get our message in front of people. We all like it. And that's going to shape the way we, can, we, we engage with the culture. It's a go along to get along kind of thing. The bottom half, though, is the people that are like, no, 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 no. It's bad. They're bad. They're not good. And when, if you're in that place... You have two options. So if you think it's bad, really bad, and you're never going to get it, we say the world's a dark, evil place, God's natural revelation is hard to read, 
And he works through the church. He doesn't work through all these pagan institutions. He's working through the church. Then you've got two options. If you are pessimistic about the world, if you think it's bad and it's never going to get better, what do you do? What did you say? Retreat. You retreat, right? Do you recognize these groups here in the retreat corner? It's the Amish. Okay, the Amish are like, yes, you guys can go live your lives with all your automobiles, but we're going to go hang out with horse and buggies, and we're not going to have electric heat because we want all of our children to huddle around the pot belly stove at night so we can actually be a family. Well, your kids will be upstairs tweeting, and you don't even know what they're tweeting about. Our kids are going to be huddled around the fire because we don't trust your social media or your zippers, you know? So we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna hide, okay? Right? And similarly, we got like the Anabaptists, which are not as well known. What are Anabaptists? Yeah, so this, this really is, it's, 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 a, it's a version of that. Um, what, what, are some of the, what are some of the markers of the Anabaptist community? Pacifists, hugely significant, right? So they're not going to fight in our wars. They're not going to. They're going to be like, listen, I read what Jesus said, right? And, you know, if you've ever seen a bumper sticker that says, when Jesus said, um, love your enemies, I think he probably meant don't kill them, right? That's a very Anabaptist kind of a framing of things. Um, and as Anabaptists, we don't tend to be in a very Anabaptist-y world here, like this community. Anabaptists have a lot of really, really valuable things to say. And I really, there's a lot of things with the Anabaptists that I admire. But it is going to be a little bit more of, listen, you guys can go and do your thing. Just live your life. But we're going to be different. We're going to, we're going to have more of a separatist kind of a, kind of a community where we're not going to participate in your wars. We might show up and be medics in your wars, but we're not going to, we're not going to pick up a gun. Okay? Yeah, Bill? I had a builder who was a German Baptist during an election. That's right, and that, that is a, that is an, it's a very Anabaptist version. So, and this this can drive people crazy if they're in the fourth quadrant. Okay, so look at the fourth guy. Who's on the fourth guy? Religious right. So the transformationalists. They say, you know what? The culture's bad, but we can change it. So long as what what has to happen in the transform? Do you know what? The, is it obvious to you what has to happen in the bottom if you're in the bottom quadrant? You have to gain the levers of power. This is what this is all about. And for a, for a lot of, maybe for a lot of us, this might be home base right here. The religious right is like, listen, it's bad. If we let these lunatics run the asylum, God knows the horrible things are going to happen. It is absolutely crucial that we grab the levers of power and hold on tight. Because if we don't, we're, we're the world's last best hope. And so that's, the, that's maybe the, the transformationist wants to like fix it, man, because you guys are terrible at this. Let us do it. Uh, so, hand. Jennifer. I saw the word that we have to be active rather than we have to be empowered. When I read that one. That we, I mean, we may not be empowered, but we can still be very active. Um, you know, right, power being like in charge. Right. But we do have the power to be active. Yes, but generally speaking, what, what we want to do with that activity is gain power, Right. The reason that we're going to campaign in the elections is so that our guys will win. We want our guys to win so they'll have the majority, so the majority 
can, it, can enforce its will over those godless minority, right? I mean, that's, that's just, ten, that tends to be the way it is. Now, Anabaptists are the most consistent with one being like, we don't want any power, it's fine, which is really kind of weird. It's a very, very, very strange way to live. But they would make a pretty strong biblical case for that, right? And so if you have, if you are, so you, got, you might be getting to find your home in these quadrants, right? And maybe, as we've said, like maybe at different times and under different circumstances. But I have a friend um, who I really love and admire. He's brilliant. Um, he leans Anabaptist. Um, he's very pro-life, but he doesn't necessarily vote pro-life. And if you're sitting in the right, in the, in the transformationist thing, you're like, how can you possibly be pro-life and not vote pro-life? And it's just, it's an absolute nonsensical crazy land. Well, he would be like, it's very similar to what Bill is saying. It's like, the world is not going to be changed. But he, he would say, you're not going to change the world through legislation. What we do is we, we appeal to hearts. We, trans, we try to persuade people not to make the decisions that are going to end a baby's life. Or you might say, yeah, what, 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 what I'm going to, my, my, my piece of that puzzle is not so much to enforce legislation, but it is to um, change the circumstance, not even to persuade a heart, but to change the circumstances so that no one would choose that. No one would want to do that. Let's create better child care. Let's create, a, let's, create a, let's create more available birth control. Let's create a system where um, children are never entering the world in an unwanted state. Let's do these other things that are not as coercive, right? So the state is coercive in its nature. At the end of the day, the state has the power to use a gun against you. Coercive power is an, is a, is an effective tool, but man, it comes with an awful lot of side effects. And so he would say, we don't use coercive power, we use other means. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, turn the other cheek. So these are the, these are the, these are the spaces. Every one of these quadrants, however, are every one of them. I want, to be, I want to be as crystal clear as I can. Every one of these quadrants can, can be and is populated with men and women who love Jesus, who want to honor him, who are reading the same Bible that you are and are trying to make the best decisions they can to shape and influence the culture. Or, or in, this, in, the, in the bottom half, to shape and influence the body of Christ that will have a slower, more lasting effect on a culture that God is going to have to do what he wants to do with, right? And every one of these quadrants has some blind spots, has some side effects that are really, really unhelpful. And we want to try to figure out, how do I get the best? How do I know where I am based on my gifts, my own capacities, based on the culture that I live in, based on the training that I've been through? What is my default way of thinking how can I gain the greatest advantage from that while still being sympathetic to the people that think differently than I do? Okay, first Kelly. Uh, I had a question about the transformationalists. Yeah. So it sounds to me, if I understood it correctly, that a lot of the transformation, the change, comes from the top down. Like you get the right people at the higher level to grab that power and pull the levers. So it's a top down change. Where in this diagram is the bottom up change represented? Yeah, okay, so Kelly's question is. Um, if it, it, is it correct, first of all, that the transformationalist is kind of a top-down? If you want to get power, I mean, really what you want is, like, you want the presidency, the Supreme Court, the Senate, the House. You want, like, the top power, and it'll trickle down. Who is it that's working kind of from a grassroots to kind of change things from the bottom up, basically? And really, it would be largely, it would be these guys, the Anabaptist circle, and then the mainline circle. These are the ones that can have the, the gentler approach to culture change. The Anabaptist is maybe the gentle, most gentle because they're going to say, listen, we're just going to pull aside, we're going to do our thing, and eventually 
when your world is in total shambles, you're gonna look over the fence and you're gonna see, man, those people seem happy. They're, you know, they, they eat grass, but they seem awful happy. And, and, and that's gonna have like this, it's gonna like make them want it, right? Was that too pejorative? Okay, right? But, and then if you're up here at the mainline church, they're gonna say, you know, you know, how, you, you know how you change the world is you're just nice to it. You just love it. And so we're gonna have more, this is where you're gonna find more of your soup kitchens, more of your shaping mercy, more of the mercy stuff is gonna live up here. More truth proclamation is gonna live down here. More mercy stuff is gonna live up, up here. Good deeds of the gospel, good words of the gospel. And so these two quadrants up here, here and here are gonna be more likely the places um, that you're gonna, you're gonna take a slow, gentle approach. Whereas if you're living down here in the religious right, it is now, baby, right now, it is urgent. There's no time, like it has to happen right now. And that's, that, if you're living in a state of urgency, these things are going to drive you bonkers because it's going to take forever. We don't have time for that. Okay. There was a couple of hands in the way of that. Yeah. It was super loud. Um, so I'm curious, Tim, of your thoughts on like where a Christian falls with sacred, secular, and just these quadrants because I feel like that very much relates to are there two separate things or, I mean, like that goes back to like are all things redeemable and I feel like that somehow fits Great. into it and that just keeps ringing in my head of like how does that Yeah, it's a great question. So, so how does the sacred-secular divide? So there is a supposed uh, sacred-secular divide. Um, is that meaningful? Is that, do I need to expand on that? Like, you know, that we have, hey, I, have, I'm, I, I work in a church, so I'm, I, I work in the sacred. You're an engineer. You work in the, in the secular. Okay? So others would say, no, 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 it's all his. Are you kidding me? Like, engineers are exploring the laws of physics, and who wrote the laws of physics? Like, it's all his, right? So you have different, um, different vantage points on that, and I think, hmm, okay, I'm not, I'm not honestly sure. I think, that's a good question, uh, but I believe that you could believe either thing about the sacred secular and show up in any one of these quadrants. Um, so the, let me think this out. So the two kingdom, and if anybody can save me from Babylon, jump in here. But if you're in a, if you're in a two kingdom framework, you recognize that the second kingdom is God's kingdom, that the government is God's kingdom. So I think they would embrace it's all his. Uh, Pat, you want to you add something? Well, I'm really conflicted when I look at this chart because I see it on a situation by situation or issue by issue basis. On this issue, I might be in one quadrant, but then on a different issue, I might be in another quadrant. Sure. And it's, it's somewhat similar to situation ethics where you take one stance in this situation but a different stance in this situation. And so I would find it very difficult to pick any one quadrant that I would pick. Yeah, well, and I, and I, think, that's, I think that is fair that you, would be in, you could be in multiple places at different times, but it is pr it's probably the case that there are some that are more appealing or maybe one that is less appealing to you, probably. I would, I would expect that the, the counterculturalist is not your world. Truly, probably. You're probably not so much there. I think, I mean, if I would just self-diagnose you as well as I know you, which is not going to be perfect, your background has been more in the mainline church, probably more in that top right quadrant. Um, you are probably more on the right side of the spectrum, I would think, than on the left side. And by the right left is not necessarily liberal, conservative, political, not necessarily the case. So probably those things are there. But if you find in yourself 
sympathies for these two views, that's a good thing. And I would, I, I would, I would champion that. Ultimately, what you'll see, we haven't gotten here yet, is that this center circle here where we have blended insights, that's where we want to be. I think ultimately we want to be in this place where we're able to take the best stuff from each thing. We want to work for the common good. We want to do everything with humble excellence. We are countercultural. I mean, the church is distinct from the world, right? And we have a unique worldview. So we want to be there, but we want to be there not just in some mushy, lukewarm way, but we're really getting the best of each thing. But as much as we want that, Pat, we don't get that. Nobody gets to be that. Because you really do have, you are wired in a certain way. You've been trained in a certain way. You view the world through a certain lens. And so you are going to be what you are. Um, it's a little bit like, have you ever heard the parable of like, somebody tried to make all the farm animals equally good at everything, and they wanted the duck to climb trees, and they wanted the, I don't know, I can't think of any other farm animals. But ducks are cr crummy at climbing trees, and it's okay, but they're really good at swimming. So let the ducks swim and let the... Let the horses pull weight or something, right? And so there's value that you look and you, re and you appreciate the ducks and don't throw rocks at the ducks. But you don't need to, like, web your feet if you're a horse, you know? It's not going to benefit anybody. Okay, but so hang on. So I'm not sure that I finished. I think you rescued me, but in a way that was unfair. So, so um, I think that we, if we ran through this, I think you could, you could see the benefit you, you could unify the... I, I, don't, I do not embrace the sacred-secular divide. Let me start that. So, me personally, I think it's all his. Every bit of it is his. And I'm grateful that we're having this very sacred conversation with LED lights that some secularists created for us, right? I'm grateful that Alan Duncan didn't go into ministry so he could start a construction company that could renovate our property, right? And so I see there's a, there's a great interaction. But... But I think that you could embrace that reality from lots, from anyone in this quadrant. That's my, that's my final answer. And somebody smarter than me might, might know that I'm wrong about something. Okay, first, Lily. Um, so does, this, this might be a bit of a leap, but does Tim Keller then take this and say, okay, ultimately, Christ came to unify all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, and especially the members of his body, right? So does he go from this to saying, look at the things that we have in common. We are at our most excellent price, regardless of the particular worldview or cultural area of Christianity to which we've been raised or influenced by. Like, how do we as the body then ultimately practice unity within all of our differences? Okay. So, so, his, so the question is, is, is Keller's kind of framework in this is to, to really champion for the unity of the body, that we embrace one another's differences and we do these things together. I would say that's true at, a, at an underlying level, but that's not the end goal, right? The end goal, the, what we're, the question we're trying to answer is, how do I engage the culture? Because we, we live on this planet. What are we to do? When Jeremiah 29 says, seek the welfare of the city, because as it prospers, you will prosper, right? This is a famous, people quote this all the time. Israel had been drug away in, in captivity, put into Babylon, and now they got to live there. So it's like, again, as Canada comes in and they, they, they drag us away and they move us all to like... Quebec. Is that a city? Okay. So they move us all to Quebec, you know, and we're going to live there. Well, what do we do? Do we like burn the thing down so we can escape from it? Or do we... <laughs> well, I don't even know what you said. Burn something down? Wait. Or do we do something else, right? And, and Jeremiah 29 would say, no, 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 no. You, you, you build a park. You start a library. 
You teach them how to build fires so they're not so cold all the time, right? You, because as the city prospers, we prosper, right? And in a similar way, we are exiles. And this is why I think 1 Peter is the most relevant book for us at this season in the church. 1 Peter would be a good place for you to spend some time. And his point is, listen, we're aliens, we're strangers. We live in the city, but how do we live in the city? How does it look like for Christians to live in this world? And we want to bless the thing. There's going to be lots of ways that I think we, we need to be separatists. Right? We, we, our marriages should look different. They should be different. But we should be doing things in such a way that it's blessing and bring benefit to others. And how do we do this? This is where he's trying to get to. Is we're not just trying to be unified among ourselves, but we were blessed to be a blessing. How? What is the best way to bless the world? Is it by seizing the levers of power so that we can dominate it? Is it by retreating so that we just do a better job so they look over the fence and realize, oh, your ideas are better than our ideas? Do we go along and we just get in and make sure that we look like them, we shape with them? Do we, who's my other guy? Oh, two kingdoms. Do we just embrace the fact that there's stuff the state's going to do, the stuff the church's going to do? We stay in our box. We do the churchy stuff and let the state do its stuff. These are the things we've got to wrestle through. Okay. Jason. Yes, and you, it, you, you very well may be, right? But you, you probably have a default way of thinking. Some of you, you were just raised in kind of in a religious right environment. That's shaping, and, then, and there's benefit to that, right? Some of you were like, I grew up in a mainline church, and my understanding of the, eth- you know, the ethics of Christianity is really about moving towards the, the broken and the needy, and that's incredible value to that. But what's, what's your default place? Brad, was it your hand that I saw? Yeah, I'm still struggling with the, the Lutheran side where they're pessimistic and they think they shouldn't affect the culture, but they believe that the culture is good. How, how does the culture get transformed in that, in that quadrant? Okay, so you're saying if, if we are, you're at the top left, you're in the two kingdoms yeah. framework, yeah. if they believe that the culture is full of strong common grace... Um, but we should not try to actively change it. How, you're saying those two things feel opposite to you? Yes. Okay. What, what is their reason? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it would, it would lean towards we don't, it doesn't need us to monkey around with it. We do what we do. They do what they do, and everybody gets along. So the church, so like, so basically the culture's fine. Like the, the police are going to do what they're going to do. The, the, the governmental structures are going to be what they're going to be. And it's been, God is going to do stuff. And in fact, there's a lot of like, a lot of things happening in the non-Christian world, like, pick a thing. Like, there are books being written that do a better job of explaining the human condition than any book that a Christian has ever written, right? So there's some, and I'm making this up, there's some, there's some Jewish person who wrote a fantastic book um, that's a memoir of his life, and it has more insight into the human condition and what it looks like to really kind of live with each other than anything that any Christian's ever written. And they're like, yeah, and that shouldn't surprise us. Because common grace is everywhere. Okay. okay, so that's out there. And so we're happy to do our churchy stuff, and we think there's benefit to it. But we're also very happy that there's other parallel institutions, and we don't need to muck around with it because they're doing just fine on their own. Let them, we're, we're glad that there are, and if it's not books about the human condition, we're just glad that there's like atheistic neuroscientists who have developed a brain surgery technique, and we're just going to leave them alone and let them do the thing and be grateful that they are. We don't need to burn down Johns Hopkins and start St. Johns Hopkins, you know? We don't, we don't need to do that. They're, 
they're, they're, they're good. Does that, does that help? Okay, all right, so we've got to stop talking in just one second. Okay, Rita, and then maybe we'll roll. Okay, that's a really good question, and again, I don't know how I would answer that. Um, one thing that I've simplified from Keller's model of this, this is, this is 97% Keller. I just simplified these little thought bubbles. Um, he, would, he, would, he would indicate that these things, there's multiple parties here, lots of different parties, and some are closer to the center, and some are more to the extreme. So it, it might be, so with the, with the giant caveat, I do not know, it might be that you would put the religious left also in that transformationalist category because they have a vision that they want to, you know, they want to transform the world too, just to perhaps a different vision than that the religious right would do. That might be the way that that would fit. Um, it might, however, be, yeah, I was thinking it might be relevant because they're, they don't, they think the problem isn't, the way that they define evil is probably different than the right defines evil. They have a different vision of what is true and good and beautiful. So they might be up top. I'm not sure. It's a good question. I don't know. I wish I did. Sorry. Okay. Bill, you get the final word, then we got to get out of here. Uh, is Keller only talking about it from the perspective of the church? How about uh, people totally outside the church don't believe in God, atheistic? Yes. This is, this is, this is, a, this is a, within a Christian framework. These are all Christian positions. A lot of our culture. For sure, absolutely. So there's there are mo so this model is only capable of explaining people within the Christian framework and how do we view kind of the world around us. So here's here's the mission. Okay, we're gonna do this really really quick. I'm just very curious if you're able to pick one, Pat. I'm so sorry. You just get one. Okay, is there one of these that is your your default? Like I think this is how I view the world. Okay, so we'll just start relevance, top right. Relevance. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, raise your hand if you're not gonna vote, no matter what I do. <laughs> all right. Okay. Let's see. Who would identify as relevance? We get a handful. Who would identify as transformationalists? Okay, who would identify in the counterculturalists? Couple. Okay, who would identify in the two kingdoms? Okay, so we tend to be, if, 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 to which, whatever extent I saw more numbers, we're on the two kingdom and the transformationalists. And that's not surprising. What we're going to do next week is try to get into, okay, what are the strengths and weaknesses of these? And how do we build a model that's like, but what do I actually do? How do I get the best of all? consistent with who I am that'll help me answer the question, what do I do? All right, that's all for now. Thanks.